We have been talking for the last, uh, last week about this idea that it's all about relationships, that, that God designed us for a relationship, that God wants us to have incredible relationships, and that that core of that was breathed into us by God. It was God's design and plan for us to live in relationship. He's relational, even in himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. His very nature is relational. And when he breathed life into Adam, he designed him to need relationship. It's a powerful thing to look at the word of God and see that before any sin had entered the world, before anything had gotten between God and man, God looked down at his creation and said, ah, it's not good yet. And then he created woman. And he said, now, now it's good. That there was relationship. <laughs> yeah. And all the gentlemen said, Amen. Yeah, right? So anyways, <laughs> so we we're designed for this relationship. So we started a journey last week through Psalm 23, looking at King David, who had one of the most incredible relationships with God. And we said our core relationships, our closest relationships need some things. They need things to be healthy and to be alive. And two of the things we pointed out last week is that they needed time. They needed time. Your great relationships need time. Your core relationships need time. Your core relationships require you to invest, require something from you. They take time. They don't just happen. Your best friends are not the people you see every couple of Christmases. You may love those people, but they're not your core. Now you get there at Christmas, you spend a few hours together and you're like, oh, I remember why you were a core relationship because time is critical in your core relationships. And the last, last thing we talked about last week is proximity is important. And that we've become a culture that tries to have a relationship with no proximity. We just read status updates and feel like we are connected to people. But that's not the kind of relationship God wants to have with us. And we could take his word from time to time and approach it like we're looking at status updates. Hey, God, thanks for posting that to me today. That was helpful. You get into the word and you're like, oh, I needed that. That was great. And that's good. And that should happen. The Bible's not a book of potential status updates for you. Your relationship with God requires proximity and nearness and closeness. And so we started talking about David and his propensity to have an incredible relationship with God. Have you ever had a relationship that you wish was going better than it was going in the moment? Some of you are in a relationship like that now. Maybe it's a friend, and you just wish it was going better, and you've tried, but for some reason, there just seems to be a disconnect, and when you think about them, there's like a, mm. maybe it's a family member, maybe it's someone, maybe it's a brother or a sister that you haven't seen for a while, and you just think, oh, I wish that relationship was going better. I wish it was healthier. I just, it, it just, things are just off right now. Some of us in our closest, nearest, and dearest relationships, if we were honest, they may be not exactly, come on now, what we wish they would be, or even what they once were. Some of us are in relationships with children or parents or a spouse. And if we looked at that relationship, you'd say, you know what I really wish? I wish that relationship was intimate like it used to be. I don't mean physically intimate. I mean close and near 
I wish I knew what was in their heart and on their heart like I used to know. And there was a time we used to hang out and just laugh and tell stories and have fun. And now we're in proximity still. We spend time around each other, but it's not intimate. It's not close. You're doing your list of responsibilities. I'm doing my list. You did the dishes. I put them away. You did the laundry. I put it away. Come on now. You fed the kids. I dropped them off at school. Like we have a system, but there's not intimacy. It's not close. We're not near. Our hearts have just been, am I I the only one that's ever experienced that? All right. Some of you are looking like, don't look at the person next to me because they're going to, don't, you're like dead eye looking at me, but you're not blinking, so I can't read your expression very well. A lot of good poker players out there today. (laughs) What happens when that happens to us and God? What happens to that when we know God's there? We know he's close or whatever. And we've just kind of fallen into a patterns of behavior that are just helping us manage our life, but it's not intimate. It's not close. He's not near. Our hearts aren't warmed when we think about each other. Acts 13.22, talking about King David, says, after removing Saul, he made David their king, and he testified confirming, concerning him that I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He'll do everything I want him to do. What an incredible in the Bible, like the book that, that for like almost 2,000 years we've compiled and passed around to each other and, and taught, we know this truth about David from like 3,500 years ago that he somehow accomplished this intimacy with God, a man after God's own heart. And so Psalm 23 has kind of been this picture that we're walking through of what that relationship really looks like. What that authentic, close relationship. And at the end, I'm going to give you one final key to, to, to those close relationships. So we're going to dive in there. If you have your Bibles, you can jump to Psalm 23. I'm going to live there for a little while, and then we'll jump around a little bit after that. We walked through the first three verses of Psalm 23, and many of you took home one of these bad boys, right? And hopefully, I think we might have some more. They'll, they'll come out, um, uh, and you guys, can, you guys can grab those. But uh, how, many, how many of you were challenged this week to try to read this every day? Was, yeah, how many of you was it really hard? How many of you made it, like, at least two days? All right, a couple of you. Yeah, cool. Good job. Good job. Good job. And we just talked about this truth of getting into this story that David tells about his intimacy with God and praying it and thinking about it and just asking, do we really believe it? So we ask the question, the Lord is my shepherd. Do I believe that? Do I believe that? Is that true of today? Is that true for this moment? We talked about how it was written from the perspective of the sheep. And that's a bummer because sheep are not awesome. They're not awesome. If you remember last week, we recognized no school mascot are the fighting sheep. There's no mighty sheep of Puyallup, right? No one does that. Why? Because sheep are not awesome. They don't have like a big tough horn or sharp teeth. They don't like kick really hard or run really fast. 
They're not smart. They're dependent. They smell. They can't even wash. They're not like cats, irritating cats. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I remember some of you cat lovers out there. So we talked about this idea that the Lord is our shepherd. And if he's our shepherd, then we lack nothing. He has permission to make me lie down in green pastures. Some of you, come on now, are trying to live your life like you don't need to rest. Trying to live your life like you don't need to slow down and recover. And you're giving your life away thinking, I'm doing a great job. And everyone's looking at what you're giving away going, this is awful. It's not helpful. Your kids are like, you're present, but because you're so exhausted, you're awful. Why don't you rest and be a little less present and a little better and recovered and whole? Your employer's like, you're working overtime, but what's coming out of you is awful because you're exhausted. And God's like, hey, you're designed to rest. I designed you. Man, if that doesn't come out, if you've been coming here for a while, that should come out all the time. You were designed to enjoy this creation that God created for us. Day six. Comes you, day seven, rest. One day on earth before we learn how to rest. Just saying, it's important. He leads me beside quiet waters and refreshes my soul. He leads me beside quiet waters and refreshes my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And let's pick up in verse four because this is kind of where we landed the plane. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Let's just stop right there. <laughs> you know how hot it is there too? That's the worst stadium. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Can we have an honest moment here? This is kind of irritating for David to go to. He just said, God wants me to rest. God wants me to be connected to him. I don't lack anything. He's the one who leads me for his name's sake. And then where does that leading take me? Through the valley of the shadow of death? Are you serious, God? If Siri did that to me, I'd be ticked. Alternate route, Siri, alternate route, alternate route. I'll go the long way. I'll take more time. Don't cut me through the valley of the shadow of death. The words here for shadow of death in the Hebrew can be interpreted a lot of ways. Some, some versions will say through the darkest of valleys, through the darkest of valleys. Even though I walk through the darkest of valleys, even though I walk through that. You know what's funny is we read this at funerals. You hear this every funeral you go to, not at weddings. Someone reads this at a wedding. That's, they're just, just don't. Like that's too honest in that moment, right? Those of you that are married, no, we walk through some valleys of shadows of the death, but we don't, we don't want to start with that conversation, right? That's not helpful. But at funerals, we read this and we go through this Honest observation because we recognize the final dark valley that we walk through here on this side of eternity is death. And then it's dark for all of us who are on the outside. Those that are in that last valley, they take their last breath on this side of eternity and then they take their first breath on the next side of eternity and they're fine. 
It's us that are still stuck in this moment, but we read this on, and during funerals, and so the valley of the shadow of death is true, and it's a good picture of what's going on. But I want to talk a little bit about valleys, because whether we like it or not, we all walk through some valleys. And whether we like it or not, when we're connected in this intimate relationship with God, what we're never given is permission to avoid the valleys of life. What we're told is the valleys are coming. And so the precursor of that is you got to rest and you got to trust God and you got to let him pour life and resources into you. And you got to understand that though you're a sheep because of who your shepherd is, you lack no thing because you're going to walk through some valleys. That's the mindset you got to have before you get there. That's the pieces that you need as you get there. But I'm going to give you a couple things about valleys today. The first thing is this valleys are unavoidable. They're unavoidable. There isn't a workaround. Nobody gets to miss them. We've got to come to terms with this one. We're all going to face them. No one is going to get through life without facing some valleys. If you faced a valley, give me a little wave here so I know I'm in the right room. Yeah. All right. So you face some valleys. What's funny is I think the moment you think you're done hitting valleys, guess what? Come on, here comes a valley. Thanks, Pastor Mike, that's depressing. Okay, well, we all live on earth and we gotta be honest about the reality of this experience. We all walk through valleys and we don't stop experiencing valleys until we don't. And the reason that we don't is we're not on earth anymore. So you're gonna experience valleys. So just come to term with that for a second. My fear is sometimes when we talk about God and we talk about experiencing a relationship with him and we talk about the promises of God and we talk about this eternal promise that there is a plan and a purpose for you and we talk about this eternal promise that, that heaven is the thing that awaits you, that somehow we want to add a promise that isn't in the scriptures is that we get to experience only heaven right now. And that's just not true. I know that's not true because of my experience. You know that's not true because of your experience. But I also know that's not true because every human in history's experience seems to prove that that's true. We're gonna go through some valleys. We're gonna face some struggle. It's unavoidable. That's why we read this passage at funerals so much. Valleys are unavoidable. Second thing I want you to catch this. Valleys are unbiased. This is important information for you to process. What you did or didn't do does not necessarily determine the valley you're going to walk through. The scripture tells us it rains on the just and the unjust. That you experience things that aren't necessarily connected to the behaviors that you had before you did that. Sometimes you experience the consequences of someone else's mistake. You've been in a relationship where you were doing everything you were supposed to do and someone else's mistake destroyed that relationship. But you went through a valley. You've been in a circumstance. Come on now. I was driving down the freeway on my way to Bible college. Gonna give a life of my year to Jesus. A year of my life. See, I don't even think the same anymore since this occurrence. A year of my life to Jesus. Someone else's choice drifts into my lane, hits my car, spins me out. 
destroys the car. I barely walk away. I didn't do anything to deserve that. I wasn't some cause and effect relationship to my sin or mistakes or choices. Valleys are unbiased. We all experience those things. In John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples run into someone who was born blind. And in their culture, everyone who had some kind of issue, they just assumed it was connected to their behavior or to their parents' behavior. It was a generational consequence of somebody's behavior. And so they asked Jesus, they're like, whose fault is it that this happened? And Jesus responds to them, it's neither this man nor his parents that sinned, but it happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. What does that mean? It means he went through something tough, but God was able to redeem, come on now, restore and use. God's in the redemption business. We walk through tough things, but God's in the redemption business. We're drawn to these promises of God, but we don't realize that one of those promises is while we're living here on earth, we experience some things. You think, oh, that's, that can't be the case. Okay, Jesus didn't walk through any valleys. He didn't experience any pain. He didn't spare his own son. But you don't understand, Pastor Mike, my valley's been so rough. It's been so difficult. Well, here's a good thing. Valleys are temporary. Valleys are temporary. This is an amazing truth. The valley doesn't last forever. But let's have an honest conversation. When you're in them, you think they do. You think I'm never getting out of this. I'm never coming through this. I was in Oregon. I had been unemployed for several months. I, I wasn't unemployed because of sin. I was unemployed because of trying to hear from God and go and plant a church. I wasn't in a bad situation because I had somehow defied God, was running from God, offended God. I was in a bad situation because I was trying to listen to God. You know what happened to a man who wants to provide for his family when months and months and months and months of rejection hits? I got depressed. I didn't want to get up. I didn't want to get dressed. I didn't want to keep trying. I wanted to blame God. And you know what I thought at the time? This is never going to end. Here's the thing. If your situation right now that you're thinking about, you think is never going to end, congratulations, you're in a valley. That's how you know. That's your valley radar. If you're looking around and like, this is never going to get better. This is never going to end. This, I'm stuck in this situation. If you looked at my finance, if you looked at this relationship, if you looked at this issue, it's never going to get better. It's never going to end. Congratulations, you're in a valley. Because that's how they all feel in that moment. That's how they all feel in that moment. Here is the incredible thing and truth of God. Valleys are temporary. What God does is he gets us through it. How many of you are in here and you've been in a valley and God's got you through it? Leave your hand up high for this one for just a second. Because somebody in the room needs to see your hand as a testimony that they may not know what your valley was and you may not know what their valley was, but you were in a valley and God got you through it. That's the story of our life when we're journeying with God who is our shepherd. Come on now, that though we walk through the valley of shadow of death, come on, we fear no evil. So don't get into a fear mode when you're stuck in a valley. They end, they're temporary. 
You walk through them. Yes, we all walk through them. But don't stop walking when you're in the valley. Don't tap out. Don't give up. I, Because uh, I did youth ministry for so long, I've had the uh, very terrible uh, privilege of meeting with friends of young teenage kids who had taken their life, who had been in a valley and believed somehow that that valley would never end and made the horrible decision to end their lives while they were in a valley. And I, I've been at school campuses praying and holding on to teenagers who are just broken because somebody got in a valley and thought, oh, I don't see the end. The problem is when we're in the valley, we think it's like a cave. It's just darker and deeper and darker and deeper, and it's not true. It's like a tunnel. Though we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Why? Because God's rod and staff can comfort you. His strength. Your strength isn't sufficient. That's okay to admit. My strength isn't enough. If my strength was enough, I would have just got up, got out of depression, and went and got on it. My strength wasn't sufficient. I couldn't do it by myself. That's why an intimate connection to the shepherd and my father is so important. Because I need his strength and I need his guidance and I need the hope of recognizing. Because something happens perspective-wise when we recognize, come on now, my dad is the biggest and baddest on the planet. Right? When I know my dad can beat up your dad, Come on now, I swell with some confidence. When I know my dad, come on now, is tougher than your dad. There's nothing that I fear. I'll please somebody come and start some mess. Please come on and try to drag me into a valley because you don't know my dad. And you may take shots at me. You may, you may try, to, try to wound me, try to harm me, try to come on now, devastate, destroy, damage my life, but you don't know my dad. Come on now, you just poked the bull, somebody. And when we know that our father is the shepherd, some things kind of can shift in our hearts and our attitudes, even though we walk through the valley. We go, all right, I'm in a pretty amazing valley here. This is a super mess. I don't know how my dad's gonna deal with this. But here's what I know, he can. And I know that he will. And I know this isn't forever. Valleys are temporary. How many of you have been through more than one valley and God's had to take you through? Yeah. Yeah, they keep coming. They keep coming. They keep coming. Here's the thing. No matter what you're working through, God doesn't abandon you. That's the Romans 8, 28 principle in effect when we did the will it float and we talked about does God really cause all things? to work together for the good of those who are in Christ and are called according to his purposes. That's that effect in process. That's how it looks. That's the first half of that passage. We do go through some things. And God, who is the shepherd, who's got our back, can cause and will cause all things. Whoo, all things, Pastor Mike? You don't know what I've been through. Okay, I don't, you win. God does. And he said all things. So is he a liar? 
Well, you don't understand what I went through. You don't understand the pain. You don't understand the situation. You don't understand the loss. You don't understand. I, you're right. You're right. But I do understand God's heart. And I do understand in this broken world, we're going to walk through some valleys. And I understand that his rod and his staff, all right, I better keep going, will comfort us. He's building us in the valley. He'll walk with you. I'll fear no evil for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. If you're walking through a dark valley, I want you to know something. You're not the only one. The enemy would want you to be afraid, terrified, feel alone, feel abandoned. It's just not true. It's just not true. All right, verse five, let's keep going. You prepare Whew, this is good. A table before me in the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. This is about provision. We already know that he'll cause us to rest and to be ready in our soul, that he'll feed our soul and restore our soul. But not just that, he is gonna meet our need as far as provision goes. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. God knows the essentials that we need. So often I think we get this out of, out of line because we think God knows the essentials of our wants and that should be the list of things that he provides for us. God, you know I want this. Okay. <laughs> but he provides our needs. One of the primary responsibilities of a shepherd is to feed and care for the flock. Here's the crazy thing that happens though. Sometimes... In the place where they're grazing, they use up all the resource. Droughts come and things come. And then something happens with a shepherd. He's got to lead, come on now, the sheep out of where they were because the provision is gone there. He's got to take them sometimes through a dark valley to get to the other side where now they can find new provision. Here's the cool thing about a good shepherd though. In, in, in this culture that David's talking about, these shepherds, if they were experienced, they would lead their sheep, calling back to them, walking in the front into new, come on now, green pastures. And they would find those green pastures and the inexperienced shepherd would just say, cool, here's the food and call his sheep in and they'd run into these green pastures and eat, but not the experienced shepherd. What the experienced shepherd would do would see that he'd come up to the crest of the hill and he'd look down and he'd see a green pasture and he'd turn around to his sheep and he would call to them and he would cause them to lay down and rest. And then he would do something. He would hike down into that green pasture and he would take his rod or his staff and he would walk through the green pasture, every square foot of it, and he's looking for something. You know what he's looking for? He's looking for anything that might harm the sheep. Because an inexperienced shepherd or a shepherd who's not committed to his sheep, he'd just ride them right into there, go ahead and eat. But a good shepherd would walk into that field and he's looking for something. He's looking for snares and danger. In that culture, there's a book um, by Charles Slemming called He Leadeth Me. And uh, it was written in the early 1900s. And he had spent time in, uh, in Jerusalem, Israel, and all the surrounding territories with those shepherds. And uh, he wrote some, 
some truths about that culture that if you don't live there, you don't know that it's true about the culture. But in many of those areas, in those regions, there's a type of snake that actually lives in the ground there wherever the water, because not a lot of water, wherever it's cooler, like close to rocks and places where tufts of grass would come up because the oxidation uh, each morning would kind of kind of crystallize around these rocks and there'd be cold areas. And the ground would get cooler and softer and these snakes will burrow into the ground. And they're called adders. And so what a good shepherd would do would actually walk through the field and he's looking for these holes, like golf-sized holes that these snakes will go in because these snakes are enemies of the sheep. And the sheep will come over and eat the grass in the area where the snake is and it'll come up and bite the sheep on the nose. Come on now. And the sheep falls over and dies because the mighty sheep can't fight. Sheep are dumb. So the good shepherd walks through and he does something. He's got flaxseed oil and other concoctions and he looks for these holes. And when he sees one, he walks over to the hole and he takes his oil and he pours it into the hole and he coats the hole with oil. Why does he do that? Because that adder now, two things. One, because of its senses, doesn't want to go towards the odor of that oil. And even if he did, the viscosity of the oil in his hole makes it difficult for him to rise up and strike at the head of the sheep. So he goes through and does that. Then he comes back to his sheep and he anoints their head, their snout with oil. He pours it on their head. Why? It does two things. One, it keeps flies and insects and it helps injuries and things like that. It brings provision. But two, they now smell like the edge of the hole where the enemy is right there. Now, sheep are dumb. They have no idea they're in the presence of their enemy, but they walk into the field and he calls them in. This is a beautiful picture. And he leads them in and they literally eat in the presence, come on now, of their enemies and they fear no evil. That's what a good shepherd does. That's the picture of what's happening here. And in our lives, God's promise is, I will lead you in. I will take you to provision. And there's still gonna be enemies. But don't you worry about those enemies because I have anointed you. My presence is with you. And you will find that though your enemies, he doesn't wipe them all out, that'd be great, but he doesn't do it that way. He says, I have poured my anointing. The aroma of my spirit is on you and they will be offended by it and they will not attack and they will not be victorious. And here I am like a sheep. I don't even know I'm in the presence of my enemies, but this is good. And he eats. Sometimes you don't even know the things that the shepherd has protected you from. Someday you'll get to heaven kind of like C.S. Lewis said, and you'll go, of course, of course God had my back. You're like, I just thought about the valley. I didn't even realize the provision and the blessing and all the ways God was providing. He prepared a table for me in the presence of my enemies. He anoints your head with oil. Your cup overflows. There's something powerful about an overflowing cup. There's something powerful about a provision, especially in a place that deals with a lot of drought, recognizing, come on now, that there is enough for you. Not just so much for you, but so much that it gets out and gets on somebody else. (laughs) 
I'm gonna get lost if I, if I land there for too long. I just want you to understand this. David knows about enemies. David's been through some tough times. He understands that this is our life, that we get face to face with enemies and we're in places where we're dependent on him. And he says, God has us in those moments. I think about David being anointed. His journey from shepherd to king started with an anointing. Started with someone saying, there's an identity in you that's bigger than your current circumstance. And your current circumstance is important because it's trained you, it's prepared you, it's got you positioned. Your heart is now malleable and God can use it. But there's an anointing in you, a calling in you, an identity in you that's larger than your current circumstance. And so here comes the prophet anointing David with oil and calling out his identity. And David said, that's how God works. You may not see the circumstance. You may feel young and insignificant compared to your brothers. You may feel like like you are not anything special, but you've just been disciplined in the thing that you have. And David says, he comes in and anoints you, calls out your destiny, calls out the plan that God has for you, calls out the potential that God has for you and says, this is who you are. You may not be experiencing it today. You may be still walking through the valley today, but don't you worry because valleys end. Come on now. And green pastures come. And you're like, I see the green pasture. I just want to run. He's like, ah, 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 ah. I'm preparing things. Because if you ran right now, come on now, the anointing wouldn't be there. You'd get in the green pasture, you'd be happy, but because you're dumb like me, you would die because you're not ready for what's going on in there, but God's prepared. Oh, come on, that is, that is pretty good. Some of you have been frustrated. Some of you have been frustrated that you haven't, you can see the green pasture. You're like, God, why haven't you just taken me into the green pasture? God's saying, I'm preparing, but you're anointed. Your head already smells like victory. Your head already smells like, I've already called out your identity. I've already decided what it could be. But I understand you're frustrated. I get it, you're in the valley. I get it, but my rod and staff's got you. And I'm also, because I'm not limited by time and space, I'm also in the pasture, prepping it. So don't get scared. That's the kind of care that an intimate shepherd has with his sheep. Jesus explains it this way in John chapter 10. Verse 10, he says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full, that they may experience in this life all of what I have designed them for, all of what I have anointed them for, all of what I have declared them to be. Their identity is bigger. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand's not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. When the wolf attacks the flock, he scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired man and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. You know, in that culture, there was a, uh, a thing that would happen when at, around the wells and around the watering holes of where the shepherds would water their sheep. They didn't have the kind of perfect branding technology that we have now for animals, and they couldn't chip them and stuff. And so, so one of the tension points that shepherds could run into is, is there's a back jam, a log jam at the watering holes, and more than one flock might be present at that time. And so these sheep would come and they would drink. And then it would be time to, to separate their flocks and go their different ways. 
And something amazing would happen because of the time and the nearness and the proximity of the shepherd. The sheep would hear the voice of their shepherd and they would recognize it. He'd say, come on, sheep. I don't know what he'd say. That's how I'd say it. Let's go. And they'd perk up. And someone else would be calling and say, let's go, sheep. And they go, oh, that's not my shepherd. That one doesn't have my back. If the wolf came, if danger came, that guy would run. This guy's proven that every valley I've gone through, he stayed with me. Every place he's led me, I can get bit by anything. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. He prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows. He anoints my head with oil. That's my shepherd and I know his voice. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd and my sheep know my voice. So we experience dark valleys. We're protected in the presence of our enemies. Not that we won't experience valleys. Not that all our enemies are destroyed. Just this promise, come on. The proximity is always the promise. The presence is always the promise that the shepherd will be there in the presence of our enemies. And finally, verse six. Surely, goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, I'm gonna break this down for a second, but I want you to hear something. This passage, these six verses, sometimes, sometimes you can exegete the beauty out of something, right? You can read, like dissect each word so carefully that you miss that it's beautiful in its entirety and that there's like a poetic nature to it. Some of you who are artists get this. Like sometimes in the moment you're working on something and someone's like, what are you working on? And you're like, well, it doesn't make sense yet. You're like, well, I see like the brush strokes. You did a thing here and you did a thing. So what is it? And you're like, I'm making a happy little tree. Just relax, <laughs> right? But it's not beautiful yet, but it is beautiful, but it's not beautiful as it can be unless you step back and look at the finished whole picture of the art that the artist is working on. Musicians, you're like, I'm working on this scale. You're like, oh, that's cool, whatever. And you're like, you, know, you don't understand. Because when I have this piece in the middle of the whole song, the beauty that it brings... So I just want you to catch, this is, I, I, the way I'm walking through this is a little, you miss, you could miss the beauty of what he's saying here. But David wraps up this picture of our interconnectedness to the shepherd by saying, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He's talking about the future being secured. Now here's my problem with this. You said <laughs> in the big picture that I was gonna, I, I needed a shepherd and you had my back and you had all the provision. Then you said you'd make me rest and you'd take care of me and you'd feed my soul and make sure that I had the intestinal fortitude because I was gonna walk through some things I didn't like. But even though I walked through those things, you were never gonna leave me. And even though there were gonna be enemies there that wanted to take from me my life, you would protect my life and my destiny. I'm good with all that. So why are you trying to lie to me? And say, goodness is going to follow me all the days of my life. I know there's more valleys coming. I don't think those are good. Why are you lying, David? You're a man after God's own heart. I didn't think you could lie like that. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I think what we see here is David is taking the whole picture now. 
I heard an example and it, it struck me. How many of you are like photographers or even amateur little, you like taking pictures and you know a little bit. All right, some of you are in the room know what they're talking about. I don't really know what I'm talking about. So don't correct me until afterwards. But this is how I think I understand it. And the beauty of this, I think makes a lot of sense. Sometimes you get a camera and it has multiple lenses, right? And there's an idea that David wants us to do here. He wants us to take the long view and see everything through God's perspective, through God's vantage point. He's saying, here's the whole picture of your life. You're gonna be dependent. You're gonna get sustained. You're gonna go through tough times. God's gonna bring your provision and your protection. You're gonna walk out of those. Anointing and overflow is gonna happen in your life. And then there's the big picture. And then we recognize, okay, so sometimes some tough things happen. So there's a lot of different lenses. And if you get a cool camera like this, usually it comes with one primary lens and uh, it says, you know, whatever categories it says, but basically it's normal, right? It's normal. I look through the lens and I see what my realm of vision is and I go snick and I take a picture. And the first perspective, the first lens is just normal. Sometimes we see things and it's just the normal way that it is. Here's the problem. There's another lens. It's like a telephoto lens. Am I saying that right? And when you put a telephoto lens on there, it's longer. And no longer do I see normal, but from all the way across, like maybe 50 yards, I can see the wings, come on now, on a butterfly. There's a telephoto lens, but I can't see everything else around me. So here's one of the things that happens. When you're in a valley, we start losing perspective. When you're in pain, we start losing perspective. When you're in a difficult time, the only thing we can focus on is the thing. That is our struggle. That is our pain. That is our point of concern. And God's like, I get it. When you're in it, that's all you can see. But those of you who have come out of a valley, come on now, you've seen some different stuff. In the moment, I'm never gonna get a job. Our finances are gonna be ruined. We're not gonna be able to plan a church if I have to go bankrupt. I'm like, we, we live in a shack with mice and snakes and bats. We moved out of a house that was nice to do this. And all of a sudden, come on now, your perspective is just this moment. It's like you have a telephoto lens and you are zoomed in and you are dialed in on the one thing. And that's okay. God gets that. He understands that we get a little myopic when we're in pain. But what David wants you to see is there's another lens. There's a wide lens. It's like a little short, stubby lens that when you put it on there, not only do you just see what you normally see, come on now, all of a sudden you can get like a panoramic view of the whole picture. And I think he's wrapping up this beautiful little letter with saying, and in the big picture, yeah, there's some mountain moments and they're amazing. Yeah, there's some valley moments and I'm doing everything I can to not be terrified and to trust God. And we come back up out of those into the mountain and there's time when he's my provision and there's time when he's leading me through tough things and he's my defense. There's time when he makes me rest. But in all of that, in the wide lens, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, I was thinking about some of the hard things that happen. And in the moment, you can't see it. When, when uh, 
the first year we moved, so 2008, to go plant the church, that summer, my cousin. Now, I grew up, uh, I grew up in one of those families where like, like your cousins are like your brothers and sisters. Some of you have cousins and you never ever see them. And I'm like, they're not your cousins. That's just something else. There's just like blood relation. But your cousins are that group that are, that are around, that don't let your head get too big, that uh, <laughs> play jokes on you and pound you into submission and you know, all the things that good cousins do. And you play games and you go to battle and you fight all the time. And if, uh, if someone messes with you, then they destroy them. But if they mess with you, you can't do anything because they're just your cousins, right? That's what family does. One of, my, one of my cousins' names was Manuel. And Manuel was the oldest of my cousins that was young enough to be in our circle, right? You know what I'm talking about? I can remember Manuel. Here's who Manuel was. Manuel was the you don't mess with family guy, right? So one day, it's Christmas. This is free. It's Christmas, and we've learned this joke. And this joke, if you've never been a youth group kid, you might not know this joke, but the joke goes like this. We're going to do a, a type of arm wrestling. Like, okay. And I know I see how big and strong you are. Yeah, yeah, I'm big and strong. So we're going to see how, if you can handle, no one ever wins this arm wrestling, but I think you can win it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Right. And you're puffing up their ego and you put their hand like this and you say, okay, I'm going to pull your hand down. Right. And you try to hold some of you are laughing because you know exactly where this is going. Right. And you try to hold. And if you can keep me from pulling your hand down for 10 seconds, then you're like the strongest, right? Whatever it is. So here's Manuel. Manuel's like, mm, he's all ripped, you know? And here's me and my cousin Jamie. We're like maybe eight and 12, and he's probably like 16, 17. And he's got his arm like this, and you know, just the 16-year-old muscles like up to here, you know? Veins are coming out of his head, and me and my cousin Jamie are like, all right, we're gonna pull your hand down. He's like, okay, so we're pulling it down. Mm, and he's like, mm, sweat, 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 sweat. And then we let go. Right? And he is stunned. He is like totally stunned, right? And we're like bracing for impact because, I mean, he's just going to kill us, right? And he stops and he looks at us and he goes, You don't ever treat your family like that. And then he walks out and he just like shamed us and everything. It was great, right? That's who Manuel was. Manuel just took care of the family. He was a good dude, went to Berkeley, graduated with uh, his law degree from Berkeley, was the first one in our immediate circle of family to go to college and go all the way through and graduate. Um, after that, he got into the real estate business and was a, a realtor and he was building, buying houses and flipping houses. He wasn't married. And while he was a realtor, his face was on, you know, things, whatever signs and things that realtors are on. And the short version of a long story is he reconnected with a college girlfriend because she saw his face on a sign. They went on a date, just one date, and she told him a sad story about an abusive ex-husband that she was trying to get away from. And they talked about it and he went home he was living in a house that he was flipping, so it was just, you know, all tools everywhere, and uh, he was up the next day, and he was working on the bathroom, and the ex-husband had been following this woman everywhere she went. He didn't know him, didn't have any relationship with him, had concocted in his mind a picture of an affair that this woman must be having with her ex-college boyfriend, and while Manuel was in the bathroom working with the door open in a house that didn't have air in California because he's flipping it, this man walked in and stabbed him to death in his bathroom. And Manuel died right there, and I had to do the funeral. Now, we've all been through some dark valleys. We've all been through some moments. So when you tell me, God, that surely goodness and love are going to follow me all the days of my life, and then I'm in that moment, I'm not sure I believe you. Now, I've done a few funerals. I haven't done any where I've just broke. I broke. I couldn't get through the material. What came out of me was just pain. God, this isn't fair. 
God, this isn't right. God, how could this be true and you also be good? How can this be my circumstance? And then we open the mic and story after story after story about Manuel's life and his impact. Stories of Manuel speaking at our great-grandmother's funeral and talking about her faith and how her faith had inspired him to faith. And hearing my little cousins, like second cousins, like my cousin's kids come up and talk about Manuel's faith in his life. And I, I hadn't seen him for, I'd been gone. I hadn't seen him very closely for years. And talking about that story. We look back, <laughs> that that was a Saturday. I wasn't supposed to, but a local pastor was like, hey, why don't you come preach on Sunday since you're in town? I'm like, dude, I just cried through a whole message. I don't think I should preach on Sunday. He's like, oh, you should just do it. And maybe your family will come to church. I was like, oh, that's a good idea. So I went and I preached and all the Puerto Ricans, all the, the heathen Puerto Ricans, come on now, all came to church. And all, because they, they had to come because they were at the funeral already. And that's what family does. If you're doing something, they just come. And they all heard the gospel. I got to be, come on, you're the preacher in the family. You'd like, come do all the weddings, but don't talk to me about Jesus, right? Because then you're, you, hey, that's what family's just like that. You know, oh, don't bring your work in here. I'm like, it's not my work, it's my life. But, <laughs> right? But they all heard. And you look back, in the moment, come on, it was myopic. Are you kidding me? It's a valley, and how? But in the wide lens, look what God did. He seeded, he, did, he brought life. He brought stories of life. It was powerful and beautiful. We got to take the long view and see things from God's vantage point. I'm running out of time again because there's just too much good stuff here. I'm going to give you the last piece because I told you I would give it to you at the beginning of what core relationships require and then we're going to be done. We said they require time. They require proximity. The last thing that they require is the thing that we don't do well, submission. They require submission. Every great relationship requires submission. Every great relationship has submission as a component. Every great friendship, every great marriage, every core relationship you have has at its core submission, mutual submission. You're like, oh, I don't understand. I don't like this S word. It means control. It doesn't mean control. What submission means, that biblical model, that word for submission, it just says this. It says, I take my strength, my energy, my power, what I've been gifted with, and I put it underneath you, and I use it to lift you up and support you and cast you forward into your destiny, into the God's best for you. I take my strength and energy, and I lend it to you. That's submission. And Ephesians 5.21, which no one wants to read. We always start at 5.22 and it talks about the marriages. But before that, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, that every core great relationship requires that. And if you're wondering about my intimacy with God has felt distant for me. It's been hard to be close and I'm trying to put time and I'm trying to put proximity, but I've been missing something. The missing ingredient is always submission. It's submission. And you're like, well, wait a second. I understand God's big and I gotta submit. Let me just tell you this. Do you know God initiated submission with you? He initiated submission. You're like, God, creator of the universe, submitted? Yeah. Philippians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 5, says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made, verse 7, he made himself nothing taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He did that for you. 
That's submission. He took his strength, his power, his authority. He put it in human flesh and he propped us up with it. That's what submission looks like. So you're wondering why your intimacy with God has felt like it's been disconnected or far. David, recognizing I'm a sheep, he's a shepherd, was pointing this out. It puts myself underneath. And here's the problem. We always want to put ourselves up. It says, God, you got this. And here's my strength. Here's my energy. And I'm submitted to what you want to accomplish in my life and here on earth. And without that submission piece, come on now, it just doesn't work. You'll always feel distant. Even if you're in the word, it'll feel social. It won't feel intimate. Without that submission, it just doesn't work. Now listen, I've been on this journey for a little while. Some of you have been a lot longer than me. Here's just what I know is true. When God and I feel far away, it's never that God went anywhere. It's that I got a little, come on now, I got a little myopic on my circumstance and I wasn't willing to step back and say, God, I trust you in this. For some of you today, you've been walking through some valleys and it's just time for you to have a little bit of reality check and recognize, yes, you're in the valley, but this, come on now, it's not forever. He's with you. His rod and his staff will comfort you. And some of us have been a little so self that we haven't been able to submit and trust God and say, God, I, you got this. For some of you today, it's just a question of, will you trust God? Because without trust, come on, that relationship's not gonna work. Do you trust him? Some of you are like, well, I don't, but I want to. Good. You know how we get trust? We take steps. We move a little bit further. We move a little bit further. So today, my simple challenge for you is this. Can we move the needle a little bit? Can we make a decision? Wherever you're at, I'm gonna just trust you a little bit more. I'm gonna trust you just a little bit more. I'm gonna let you take me a little bit further. And I don't know if you've been reading the Psalm. I told you it was gonna be a seven-day challenge. I think for some of you, it needs to be a 14-day challenge, which will really be a seven-day challenge. So, so here it is. The next seven days, before you start your day. Now, some of you, it may take till after you got your coffee. I get that. You're like, I can't read until I have my coffee, right? You're like, okay, that's fine. Get your coffee, whatever it takes. But before you start your day, I wanna invite you to just walk through these six verses. Just walk through them. And I just want you to ask yourself the very real question. Do I believe this? Do I trust you? Am I submitted? God, you're my shepherd. Do I believe that? I lack nothing. God, my, my, my temporal, my actual doesn't match the spiritual that you're saying because I know I lack some things. I'm looking at my account and there's some lack. But you say I lack nothing. So I'm gonna believe that today. I'm gonna live today like that's true. I might not be able to do it tomorrow. I might not have done it yesterday, but I'm gonna start today like that's true. I'm gonna trust you. I'm gonna submit. You have permission to make me lie down. If I'm going too hard, you can make me rest. You can fill my soul. You have permission, even if I'm in a dark valley, a dark place, I'm not gonna be afraid. I doesn't, it doesn't mean you're gonna remove every dark valley, but I may be in it. I may be in it for a while still. It may take a while before I get out of this. It may not be an imminent ending, but I'm not gonna to move to fear. I'm not gonna give up. I'm gonna trust you. So today, even if I'm in a valley, I'm gonna trust you. You're gonna prepare a table for me in presence of my enemies. I may not know how my provision's gonna come, but today I'm gonna to trust you that I'm gonna have absolutely everything I need. Whatever that is. It may not be everything I want, 
but it's going to be everything I need. You're going to make sure I have that. God, I just pray for us as a body. I think about what would happen if we could calibrate ourselves to your presence, if we could calibrate ourselves to your word, if we could start our day just simply believing that the truth of your word is true for our lives today. I wonder what could change. I wonder what walls would come down. I wonder if our hearts would get soft, if our wide lens angle would begin to to change our perspective. If we could literally see what you saw in broken relationships where we feel hurt and harmed and we only see our angle in that. God, would you give us the wide lens to see what you see? Yes, they're broken and I'm broken too. And all of our brokenness is covered under the, the sacrifice that you made when you submitted and sent your son to pay for us. Would you restore and heal brokenness? God, I think of those that have gone through so much in the valley that they've just thought, God, I don't know how to get out of this. God, your rod, your staff, your provision, your word, the promises of your word are what we hold on to in those moments because they don't last forever. Sometimes we, the perspective we need to have isn't even just the rest of our lives. It's the rest of our eternities. The rest of our lives may never look better than the valley that we're in right now. But you know what? Eternity is promised and it is so much better. So our hope isn't in even getting out of this valley in this moment. It's in what's provided beyond the valley. So we put our trust in you. God, thanks for your word. I pray it would change us, challenge us. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen.